crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and in this episode, I'm trying something a little different. I'll be back to the usual format next time, but this one is a pre-Christmas book review to help you find a great present for someone special in your life. My guest is Julian Joyce, an ex-BBC journalist with an eclectic reading list and a lovely relaxed way about him, perhaps helped by the fact we were recording in his sitting room. On which note, apologies if there's a little bit of traffic noise in the background and the odd bump as a cup of tea lands on the table next to the microphone. Okay, housekeeping. There's a couple of light swearies in there, but the biggest things to give you a heads up on are discussions of depression and also the Holocaust and Holocaust denial. Uh, That makes it sound heavy going for a book review episode, but I swear there are plenty of lighter moments as well. Two final things. First, the reason I've made this episode is to start a conversation on good books that you in the Serendipity Soup community can recommend to me and to each other. I'm nearly at the end of my current reading list and I need to feed the beast, so please leave your recommendations on LinkedIn or Twitter, where my handle is at Soup Serendipity. Speaking of feeding the beast, second thing, if you're going to buy your books, please try to avoid Amazon. They funnel their profits through the tax haven of Luxembourg, leaving the rest of us to foot the bill for the roads they use and the grants paid by local and central government to the company to set up new warehouses. I've put a link to an article by Ethical Consumer magazine with a list of alternatives in the show notes, but in brief, try to buy from a local independent bookstore, World of Books, Oxfam or Biblio, or better still, go to your local library if you still have one. Right, that's enough of that. Time for a bonus taste of Serendipity Soup. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Serendipity Soup. This one is a little bit different from the usual. I do have a guest, but instead of talking through their life and times and the ups and downs of their lives, we're doing something a bit different in the run-up to Christmas. We're going to be doing a book review. The genesis of this is that for a long time now on LinkedIn, I've been around this time of year, so mid-November, I've been putting a list of the books I've read this year, and the idea is that I'm putting that list on to see if other nerds like me want to read any of the books that I've enjoyed, and I'm hoping that in return they'll make some good recommendations to me, and I've had some lovely book recommendations over the years from people via this route. But 
this year is different. This year I have serendipity soup. As I've got the podcast, I thought I would take advantage. But it's no good just listening to me witter on. So I've got a, a very special guest here with me. Julian, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Julian Joyce. My background is journalism. Mm-hmm. I've been a journalist for, uh, well, all my working life, really. And I just finished 32 years at the BBC last month and I retired. I'm now a, a lecturer at a, a university. I teach journalism. I'm also a student. I'm also doing a master's course in film making so I'm keeping quite busy despite not uh, working in quotes I've got three kids I live in West London and I like reading that's the qualification is that you are an avid reader but also you read different books from me and so I was hoping that what we could do in this short bonus episode is go a bit wider than the usual non-fiction which is what I cover the format for this is essentially to qualify a book needs to be read either by Julian or myself this year and needs to be one that we've enjoyed so there are a few books that I've given a go to this year that I didn't finish. There's going to be a list of all the books on the show notes if you want to have a look. We're only going to be able to go through, we think, three each, but there'll be far more in the show notes and hopefully they will give you some ideas for uh, what you might want to give to the nerd in your life. So uh, without further ado, Julian... It's only right that you should go first as a guest. So what are the three books that you've chosen to review in brief? When you first asked me to do this, I said to you, listen, I don't really have to read the Booker Prize book list. I tend to reread books, and I think in a way that's a mark of their value to me. I think if I like the book enough, I will reread them. So uh, a couple of the books that I've chosen are books that I've read before. I used to mm. I used to read a lot of science fiction when I was um, very young, so, yeah. you know, in my sort of early teens and, and onwards, basically, and I gave up on science fiction for many years. But uh, recently I found myself rereading a book by Clifford Simak, who is a American science fiction writer from what they call the golden age of science fiction, which is a post-war onwards until the 50s, early 60s. Uh, Simak was a journalist journalist as well. Maybe that's one of the reasons I like him as well. He's got a lovely writing style, very sort of, you know, succinct and plain. So I like the way he writes. And he wrote a book called City, which is a story of man's civilization and how it declined. And it's an unusual book. It spans thousands of years. The plot is that the man basically gets pissed off with living in urban environments and because of progress and science and stuff, everybody is able to live in the country and live their ideal. It's like a small-town American existence, in a way, which is actually something quite common to a lot of the writers from the Golden Age. So Ray Bradbury is the same. A lot of his books are set in a, a place called Spalding, uh, somewhere in the Midwest, or whatever. And mm. it's it's like it's old-time American Midwestern family values and, and mm. environment stuff, but transported into the future. Robert Heinlein's the same, very similar, very different politics from those guys, but the same Midwestern sensibility, which makes for linear narratives. It's all quite plain. It's all quite simple. People do things, they have consequences. Other people react to those consequences. It doesn't jump around like a lot of books. So it's actually quite simple to read. The, the plot is weird. Mankind develops the ability to create mutant dogs, which then <laughs> achieve a level of civilization comparable to man. Man basically goes to Jupiter. Because why wouldn't you? But right? Why wouldn't you? Well, if you can travel in space, why not go to Jupiter? And he disappears from the face of the earth. The dogs take over, and the dogs have this big fight with the ant civilization, which takes so it's quite complicated. The ants also become mutants and they basically build a civilization which eventually replaces the dog civilization. So it's very, very weird. But I do like the style and I do like the writing style of it. I do like the plain, simple English that it's written in. And the, yes. and the author's uh, Clifford Simak, 
who is long dead, I think. But he wrote this book in 19... 1952, I think. Okay. So Aged well, do you think? It's got very different priorities, I think. So he has this uh, obsession with man's aggressiveness, for instance, and he thinks that man will always destroy himself, which is why he says that man moving, moving out to the countryside and living in houses rather than cities and leading a peaceful rural existence is uh, the idea of where we should be heading. But I think that's borne out, again, when it was written, so 1952, very shortly after the Second World War. Mm. I think we forget how traumatic the war was for our, yeah. sort of our parents and our grandparents' generation just in terms of these terrible things were, were happening right in front of your eyes you know, from, and for a long time. The world was an apocalypse in many ways and how would you deal with that? So I think we're quite lucky we're quite sheltered we've not had that experience but i think it explains this author's obsession with man's inherent ability to to be aggressive and to just destroy itself so there's that yeah for sure yeah i noticed you use the word man a lot to yeah. refer to humans yeah so which includes uh, women at, at yeah, some point absolutely I yeah yeah sorry I, I should be using more inclusive language my, my apologies for that. <laughs> no that's all right i was wondering if it was maybe a bit of a hangover from the book but that's the kind yes. of language he oh, would use absolutely yes yeah he would uh, obviously you know of, he's of his time mm. uh, and so uh, mankind and man and stuff was uh, you know used as a kind of catch-all basically yeah. yeah maybe that takes us a slightly bumpy segue into one of your other books uh, that you're recommending. What's your second one? So this is a book called Cloud Atlas that was made into a film, I think, about eight or nine years ago by the Wachowski sisters, as they are now. And uh, they're obviously the, the same directors who are responsible for The Matrix. The Matrix, the Matrix yeah. yeah. So one of the best sci-fi films I think I've ever seen. I remember watching it and just being blown away Everyone says it was Red Dwarf, Second Life, remade. Yeah. The idea wasn't very original, but I thought the concept and the way it was put together was superb. Yeah. So this isn't about this isn't about the film, obviously. This is about the, the book, which is written by an English author called David Mitchell, but not the David Mitchell you're thinking of. That's right. There are two David Mitchell are. national treasures, aren't there? And this is the author, this not the panel show. Indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a very good author. It's a lovely book, and I, and I really enjoyed the film, and I thought it's one of these books that you see the film, you think, oh, maybe I'll enjoy the book. And I really, really did. It's very well written. In fact, I probably enjoyed the book more than the film. And again, it's another book that I'm currently rereading. I read it, I think, soon after the film came out, which is about 2012. But I read the book then and really enjoyed it. And I'm rereading it now and getting, again, getting a lot out of it. It's just beautifully written. It's a series of interconnected stories, again, spanning a long period of time. It starts, the first bit is set in the 19th century. And it's about an American who is on a voyage. And and then basically different characters, but there's a common theme running through it, which is that the world is divided into two sorts of people, if you like, predators and victims. And that's the theme in every story that the predators are in the game, basically, to dominate other people and get what they can out of it. And that's that fight between good and evil, if you like, that goes all the way through. So it ends up in a post-apocalyptic society. So if you've seen the film, that's Tom Hanks playing the sort of post-apocalyptic hero. And a lot of people laughed at the film because they were it's an ensemble piece. So the same actors play different characters throughout the film. So you see Tom Hanks and Halle Berry and, and various other people, Jim Broadbent. All these people surface in different guises as the film moves through these different times. A lot of people laughed at it because they thought the makeup was ridiculous and stuff. But if you immerse yourself 
myself, and it it's actually quite uh, quite a nice quite a nice film. I enjoyed it. But the book, as I say, beautifully written book, really compelling plot. That eternal struggle between good and evil, which I think is very relatable. Really, it's a plot that we all like. I think, yeah. So I, I would recommend it for sure. Absolutely interesting. This another post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that you or is that sci-fi? Do you think most sci-fi? is pretty post-apocalyptic. Yeah, I think Maybe so. I mean, sci-fi that divides into two. There's people who think that the world's going to be an amazing place when in, in the future. Some people who think it's going to be absolutely hell, like probably most other science fiction. So like, the Terminator thing is a, mm. is a trope, isn't it? That's the most appealing one, yeah. But yeah, absolutely, yeah. I haven't seen the film Cloud Atlas, so maybe I should give it a go, but it sounds like the book might be a better option. The book you'd enjoy, yeah. It's the same approach to it. It's basically interconnected narratives that jumps in and out, basically. You'll have a bit of this story, and then you have a bit of the next story, and have a bit of the next story, and then basically it'll pick up the first story where it ended. It's, it's like a puzzle. Like a, it's been described as a, uh, a crossword puzzle of a book where you have to put it all together. But there is this lovely theme that comes out of it, which is, and you'll be glad to know that good does triumph over evil in the end. Thank that's goodness. a spoiler, that's a spoiler. Well, I suppose this is one of the reasons so I said to you before we started recording that I don't really read much fiction and the reason for that is there's enough shit to deal with in the real world without becoming concerned about fictional characters so is that the reason that you don't enjoy fiction though? people who listen to the podcast will know that I suffer from depression and have done for a long time but when I had a, a mental breakdown which is almost exactly 10 years ago I just couldn't read fiction anymore I couldn't even read the news for a long time and I would have thought it would have the opposite thing in a way if, if you were in that state of mind that you would find the news, for instance, or, or even anything that was real more challenging than uh, something that was just made up by some person and written down. No, it's more becoming invested in the characters and then having something awful happen to those characters. I'm less so now, but at the time I was very, very sensitive to things like that. You know, I had two very young children. You know, I work in climate change and always have done. And I was just in this place of thinking terrible things are just around the corner. Of course, in real life, for most people, certainly in the UK, obviously there are exceptions. For most people, terrible things aren't around the corner. And this is, again, the thing with the media is that if you hear of somebody being murdered, it's like the brain that we've evolved is used to a village. So the idea of somebody being murdered in a village of, say, 200 people is appalling. The idea of constantly being told that people are being murdered when your brain is thinking, well, I live in a village, when actually you live in a country of 60 million people, you can't even conceive of that number of people. So just this sense that awful things are happening all the time when really... They're not. Yeah. Uh, so I used to be quite puritanical about that. I had relatives who, for the same reason, wouldn't watch the news because they found it upsetting and stuff. And I used to get quite angry with them and say, it's going on. Yeah. You, your responsibility is to know what's going on. But I really get it now, especially from the point of view that you're pretty powerless, aren't you, as an individual to change things? One side of me thinks, I need to know this. This is important stuff. But the other side of me, if you've ever been to um, therapy one of the things that a therapist will tell you is not to worry about things that are outside your control that is a, a sure way to poor mental health and the news is pretty much precisely that it's interesting that I, so I w- was working with a therapist as well and she actually advised me to read novels so that's interesting right. she said maybe it's just me maybe it was she sensed a certain lack of knowledge about other, how other people operated maybe there was that yeah. but she said definitely read novels you know, read about real people dealing with situations 
situations and how they interact and how they talk to each other and the problems they face. And, and that will make you feel more grounded in yourself if you do that. So it's interesting that, yeah. that, that my therapist would suggest that. Really. Well, I can see where he or she is com- coming from. I remember having a go at having two goes at War and Peace. And I've never finished War and Peace. Is, the long, is, it, the longest, is it the longest book in the world, or the longest fiction book in the I world? I think it must be. It certainly <laughs> felt like it. But the trouble with it was was the length, but it was so well written. It was so brilliant. And there's a character in it, the main character, Prince Andrew, yeah. uh, Prince Andre, in, in the one I was reading. And there's a superb bit where he sees an oak tree and... He goes past it once, and it's spring, and, and this tree is coming into bud, and and he looks at it as this marvellous totem of, of permanence and life and, and so on. And then later on in the book, and it's not, as far as I can tell, a deliberate plot device. It's simply part of the rich picture that Tolstoy's painting. He sees the same tree, and he looks at it, and he just thinks... All he sees this time is the old branches that have rotten and fallen down and the inevitable decay of this once mighty oak tree. And I saw that and I thought, oh my God, that is... And it really hit home to me. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it because it hit home how it's the perception of literally the same thing. It's the mental space that that character is currently occupying determines how they view something that the author has set out is exactly the same tree. And it's only a few months apart, so he makes clear it's not dead. But Prince Andre is looking at it with a whole new, very world-weary... So uh, this is what depression does to you, isn't it? So depression Mm. will will colour or take away the colour of the world. Yeah, and that kind of brings us full circle to, to the books that I read. Books, by their nature, deal with often quite extreme situations because those are interesting quite extreme characters or even normal characters or apparently normal people in quite extreme situations and I guess it's that thing of when you think oh the worst can happen and then you read a book and the worst does happen Mm. you think oh my goodness you know and it's all confirmed it's all confirmed but yeah so returning to the books what's your third pick or recommendation. So I've got quite a dark one now, actually. Uh, which Even is darker than much darker ants than versus dogs versus exactly. people yeah, on no, the moon. It really happened. So this is a book called Ordinary Men, and it's by a US academic called Christopher Browning, who is actually he's a Holocaust expert. He's given evidence in Holocaust trials. I don't know if you remember the David Irving trial. Yes. Yes. So he was an expert witness there for for, for people who might not have heard of David Irving. So David Irving's a historian. He has been described as, and it's probably probably can now say that he's a neo-Nazi. He admires Hitler and, and tries to make excuses for Nazis. He was quite prominent at one time because he does do his research, but what they discovered, especially after the trial that he went through, he's very selective with his sources. So he will quote bits of Hitler's diary, Goebbels' diaries, for instance, and he'll quote bits of history that suit his case. And his, his fundamental point of view is that it's not that the Holocaust didn't happen, but it happened in a much more limited way and that not nearly as many people were killed by the Nazis as were as actually were. And he's done fun things like dispute the evidence of the gas chambers at Auschwitz and all that stuff. So he's, yeah, he's a nasty piece of work. Christopher Browning is a Holocaust expert who has done a lot of research into motivation of why the, the Nazis behaved as they, they did and more importantly why did ordinary people support 
the Nazis. And I'm interested in this because uh, a lot of people say it could never happen here. There could never be a Hitler. There could never be a fascist regime that takes hold in, in this country because we're just way too civilised. We're not German or we're not Japanese or whatever. No, there's a slightly sort of racial superiority thing going on there. But Browning makes a case that everyone is capable of the, of the worst things. And his uh, book, which is called Ordinary Men, focuses on the reserve police battalion. They're not even soldiers. They're policemen. And they were made up of ordinary clerks, a railway signal men, junior teachers, just ordinary Joes, basically, who were conscripted and sent to German-occupied Poland and Russia after Polish campaign, also Barbarossa, to basically hunt down and massacre all the people that the the Nazis didn't like, like Jews, Polish academics, gypsies, all the people that the the Nazis thought didn't didn't have a right to live. And they carried out the most horrendous massacres, women and children, absolutely terrible things. He details it. But the interesting thing was, he says they weren't forced to do it. They chose to do it because they were given the option at several points. Uh, individual battalion or uh, groups of men in the battalion would said, well, you don't want to do this thing. And they told them what they were going to do. You can step out of the line and uh, there'll be no repercussions. And about three or four men out of this battalion took that option and the rest just went along with it through peer pressure, misguided loyalty, maybe. But the point is that they were, as the, as the title says, ordinary men. They, they did the most terrible things yes I mean and the book as well the book I read and so I apologise to your listeners uh, for this actually because it is really dark and I'm trying to think is there a positive reason to read this stuff to know about this stuff to know about the depths to which ordinary people can sink is there, is there or should we just ignore it rather like you ignore Well, I mean, this is my view, and I'd be interested in your view on it. But, you know, it's important, in my view, to understand why people behave the way they do, because otherwise you're doomed to repeat it, are you not? It feels very, very important to understand the mechanism by which what seem to be norms of society just disappear. Absolutely. I I totally agree with that. I think, you know, understanding is the first step, isn't it? And the knowledge that you have is the first step if you want to behave differently or encourage other people to behave differently. I think if if someone's making a ridiculous argument and stuff, you can actually counter it and say, well, look, you know, this is what happened in the past and it wasn't good. It didn't turn out well, you know. Mm. Uh, So maybe that's not the the best course of action. Maybe that's not the best way of, of thinking about these things. I think as well it comes back to the point that that we touched on with Cloud Atlas, which is that actually, I think in sci-fi especially, there is this black and white, predators, victims, good, evil. But in real life, it's a lot darker and also a lot more complicated and maybe interesting than yeah, that. A which lot messier, is, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, a lot messier. And so I don't think anything that says, well, these are the heroes of the Second World War, or any war for that matter, these are the villains. And the reason they're heroes is because they're good, and the reason they're villains is because they're bad. What do we actually learn from that in order to prevent another war? I would say nothing. This is this maybe brings me to an interesting difference in the way that you and I read books. Because for me, I've only recently come to this amazing conclusion that I don't have to finish a book that I've started. And that was where the original idea for my LinkedIn list came from. I thought... These are books that I'm not enjoying, so I'm going to stop reading them. And I thought, well, that's a recommendation of of its own, isn't it? It's basically saying, well, look, if you like the same sort of books as me or same themes as me, then you might find this one hard going. So I'm just saying, look, I just didn't finish it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying I didn't finish it. But the idea that I could skip through the bits that I didn't like, 
I'm genuinely, that's blown me away. I just think once you're invested, you're in. You've yeah. got to read the whole thing cover nothing. to cover. Yeah. Well, what's a book that you haven't finished then? And the reason why you didn't finish it, what would be, what would be a good example of that? So next to me, I have a pile of books that I read or didn't read this year. And one that was recommended to me, actually, and I wish I could finish it, but I can't, is called Dirt. The subtitle is One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. It's by a guy called Gabe Brown, who's an American farmer. And essentially, the book is about how he's living that Midwest lifestyle that um, Clifford... Yes, uh, Clifford Simmerk, yes. Clifford Simmerk romanticises. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. except here, the, the darkness has already come. He's a family farmer, and he took over his mother and father's farm. And the farm was going downhill. It wasn't making a profit the soil was degrading he was losing topsoil it was losing fertility he was having to pay more and more for chemical inputs and things were going really not very well despite the fact that these were well-seasoned family farmers and so at some point i think it's in the early 2000s maybe the late 90s i forget because i read this back at the beginning of the year he turns to regenerative agriculture which is essentially a method of farming that is quite in vogue now but this was years ago that he was doing it which involves no chemical inputs at all but that you manage the land in a way that pretty closely mimics nature and so the land he's on there would have once been prairie so what he's doing is he's stocking it with cattle but he is moving those cattle on very quickly from one place to another to mimic what would have happened when they'd been chased by predators like buffalo or whatever on the prairie exactly like yeah, buffalo on the yeah, prairie yeah. being chased by i don't know what the predators of buffalo were indians be. probably native americans yeah. native americans yeah, maybe uh, i think probably yeah well yeah i suppose certainly for tens of thousands of years but yeah. other large animals as well i would have thought anyway the point is to mimic this and the grass that you grow he's not growing monocropping he's growing like 40 different varieties of all sorts of crops And he's turning a profit. His land was dying and he was saying, what are the measurements of the land that's dying? And one of them is topsoil formation. So there's a big thing in life sciences that topsoil takes thousands of years to create. But that's because people think of it as being weathered from the bedrock. Whereas in this case, what they're doing is they're building it up through animal manure and biomass. So, you know, plants. And he was creating topsoil. You know, this topsoil that had been lost right throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, he was creating... Because that would be Dust Bowl America, wouldn't Dust it? Dust Bowl America, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he wasn't using chemical, artificial fertilisers, artificial herbicides, artificial pesticides, the list goes on. And he turned a profit. And now this is what he does. He writes about this. Now, the problem with the book is that it's falls, in my view, between two stools. One is this inspirational story for people who aren't farmers, like Mm. me, Mm. telling you about how this guy who really knows his stuff turned from a very mechanistic view of his farm into something much more holistic and how that has helped the planet and it's helped his pocket and he's kept himself in business. It's sustainability from social, economic and environmental viewpoints. It's a positive story. Very positive story. The other element of it is that he's writing for somebody who might want to be that farmer. So there's a lot of reference to the thickness in inches of the pipes that he uses to take water around his farm. I forgave him the first few of those, but after a while I was like, I can't take this anymore. Too much detail. So I think the failure there, and goodness knows, I I shouldn't be saying somebody's inspirational as that, but I think maybe the failure there is that the book 
seems to be trying to talk to two different audiences at the same time and slightly misses both, I would suggest. Yeah, that's very important, isn't it, to know who your your main audience is going to be and then target that audience. I think so, yeah. yeah. But I don't want to put people off because that was recommended to me by uh, Caroline Simmons, who was one of my colleagues working at the Environment Agency. And I'd never heard of regenerative agriculture before. And it introduced me to this concept that really gave me hope, as you said. Did you ever feel, though, that when you were reading it, I now know enough about it, yes. and that's it, basically? I mean, I think that's I think that's quite important, isn't it? So not to force yourself to read stuff if you're not actually getting much more out of it. So you've, you've reached your limit. You've got what you need to know. You can then move on. So mm. I don't think you should... Uh, well, I'm sure you don't, but, but I wouldn't feel guilty about... I do feel guilty about not finishing it. I feel like I should. I don't think you do. I think, <laughs> you know, the book is out there. It's up to you how you use it. You, know, you have the freedom to stop reading. I have trouble not finishing books. So anyway, that was one of my favourites that I didn't finish this year. I'm saying I'm not not recommending it, but I suppose I'm saying it's interesting, but there's a... Mm, watch out. There's watch a, out. There's maybe. a health warning on it. If you don't want to know too much about pipe diameters, then yeah, and stay clear, yeah. maybe, or, or stop reading. Or you, maybe stop you. reading, because as I say, it was incredibly inspirational, yeah. and it's given me a lot of knowledge. I can now think about some of the problems that we see in UK agriculture all over the place and think, ah, there are solutions there. On which point, the book I did read, and which is very, very positive... Which you did finish. I read and finished, yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's called Wilding by a lady called Isabella Tree, <laughs> which is That's appropriate, great, isn't great it? Name, yeah. uh, now, let me find Wilding by Isabella Tree. So this is a beautiful, beautiful book. And again, it's about mm, agriculture. And so it's not rewilding. And the idea that it's not rewilding, it's about an estate in Sussex called the Nepp Estate, K-N-E-P-P. It's been in the family, her husband's family, since the Norman Conquest, probably. And at some point, again, this is the early 2000s, they decide this isn't working. This model of agriculture is not working. And so they decide in the early 2000s, I think to rewild, I'll use the term for the moment, to rewild their estate. So instead of it being a monoculture of kind of grass and pasture used for raising beef cattle and then um, some arable farm, they allow nature to take over, but they go beyond that a bit. They help nature to take over. I'm trying to remember, I think there is an element of them still farming to an extent but it's further along the spectrum than the regenerative agriculture that Gabe Brown the previous author did so I don't think that they actually rely on the income from the farm to keep it going they've had this land for for generations so they're not paying rent on it or anything but I think they still have parts of it that are used for agriculture the idea is more to create an ecosystem and instead of going for a particular species saying well we want to protect the turtle dove for example or we want to protect the nightingale you don't do that you just say no we're going to let nature do its thing and those species will come and pretty much that's what happened but presumably uh i don't want to call it the vanity project because it's very serious but this is not something that we could it's not practical for every farmer on the land to do presumably is it well this is the issue it's called the fallacy of decomposition or it was called that by Keynes, um, John Maynard Keynes, the idea that what might make sense for an individual might not make sense at the societal level. And I think there is definitely an issue of that. And that's why I was quite interested in the regenerative farming side of things, because it seems to me that the wilding side of things works to an extent. It meets the environmental bit of the 
sustainability triangle probably does quite well on the social side but not the economic side now it's a while since i read it so maybe i'm being a bit harsh there and i think some people would say well actually you can have very productive ecosystems that still very closely mimic nature so you might want not go for the full wilding effect you might go a little bit further so you'd have some land completely wilded and some land that is in these very productive agroforestry ways of doing things which is where you might have nut trees with fruit bushes with i don't know things like potatoes and so on and they all work off each other and what's your what's your end goal what's where where do you want where do you want to be if you believe in this stuff well, I guess I, I would turn the question around and say, what's the end goal of somebody who's a, if a fan of industrial agriculture? Where do you think that's going to lead? Well, I mean, I mean, the industrial agriculture fans will say, well, it feeds us. For uh, now. Uh, food is cheap, you know, obviously, you know, poor people don't starve to death. So that would be... That would be their argument, I suppose. Yeah, well, in, in a country where food banks have shot up, I would slightly dispute that. But I also think there's a certain nerve to people who suddenly discover that they do care about the poor when it comes to protecting their profits in agriculture or oil or whatever it might be. So my answer to that would be that actually we need to pay more for our food and we need people to be paid better so that they can afford it. That would be my comeback on that. But yeah, so where's where's the end? I, I guess I'm interested in these things because I can see the environmental damage being caused by our current food production system. So yes, it's producing cheap food, although like I say, certainly still people can't afford it. The food banks run by the Trussell Trust will tell you that. But it, it's borrowing from the future to to feed the present. We were talking there about soil degradation, but we, we're also degrading our waters, our rivers. You know, a lot of the pollution in our rivers comes from industrial agriculture. And now there are ways of sorting that that aren't quite as extreme as wilding. I totally agree with that. But it's quite hard to see how we can carry on with our current mode of industrial agriculture and keep getting away with it. So what's the solution? I mean, is it a political thing or is it something that people can do on their own? Ah, that's your BBC training coming in, isn't it? <laughs> what can people do on their own and what is systemic? I mean, a lot of this stuff is systemic. That is part of the problem. You know, this needs huge change in government policy. It needs change in markets and it needs changes in incentives for individuals. At the moment, you know, organic produce, for example, which is not necessarily produced in, in a rewilding situation, but is certainly better than industrial agriculture for environmental impacts. The organic side of things is more expensive, but there's a reason for that. And the reason is that it's seen as a product differentiator. So a product differentiator is simply where a producer spots that there is a little segment of the market that will pay more for this bog-standard thing if it's got some fairy dust. Well, organic apples cost more than ordinary Exactly. They don't cost that much to produce. It's because they're aimed at people that the producer knows will pay more. It's like having a standard kit costs you, I don't know, 80p or something, and then you suddenly realise that there's this market of super-rich individuals who would pay £3 for a kit cap that's got gold spray on it. So you produce the gold spray Kit Kat. Yeah, yeah. Other chocolate bars are available. And that's the trouble with it. It's seen as this product differentiator, whereas it, in fact it should be standard. Mm. And of course, people will criticise and say, "Well, you can't feed this lower output per acre, and so on and so forth." And I'm not pretending to know my way around yeah. all of the industrial and environmental agriculture debate. It's yeah. huge. My point is, I'm quite interested in learning what some of the alternatives are because I'm perfectly well aware of 
the current model, and I'm aware of its pitfalls, yeah. so I'm educating myself. But I don't want to get distracted by that because I want to get on to the next book, uh, which is called Escaping the Rabbit Hole. Uh, Subtitle: How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect oh, by a guy oh, called Mick West. I'm interested in this one, yeah, for sure. This yeah. is brilliant. And for those of a certain age, Mick West, he was one of the people who coded the Sega Mega Drive game Tony Hawk Skater. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, which is where he made a lot of his money. He's a, he's a games designer. He's yeah, from, yeah. from Newcastle, I think, yeah. in the UK, but he now lives in West Coast of the U- United States. And maybe his central message of this book that I took away was that you do not and should not view conspiracy theorists as stupid and nor should you view them as being particularly subpar educationally socially or anything else and his evidence for that is that people all over the social spectrum fall into the rabbit hole, the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And it's a brilliant book about how do you get them out. So it's essentially a de-radicalisation book. So how do you help somebody who has fallen into the rabbit hole, whether it's anti-vax, whether it's uh, flat earth, whether it's chemtrails, 9-11 truthers, the whole lot. And I have to say, I hadn't heard of half these conspiracy theories until I read through them. And the trouble with them is that they, once you read them, you're like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. So the 9-11 truthers is a classic one. So you don't believe we land on the moon then? <laughs> yeah, so I've read this book and I'm basically now full-blown conspiracy theorist. Yeah. So it's an absolute... It's so well-written, it's so empathetic, but also so firm on what is truth and what is not truth, you know? And, and I think that relativism of, well, everybody believes what they want to believe is so dangerous. You know, some things are true and some things are not. And of course, there's opinion, which is somewhere out there, but there are facts and they are verifiable facts. But the question is then, how do you get beyond those facts to persuade people that what they're reading is not true? And it is so well done. And it's written almost as, as if he was talking to you as an advisor. So let's say your, your son or daughter or mother or friend has fallen down the rabbit hole and has started saying some quite odd stuff. Yeah. And it has happened to me. And, me, happened, and me. Has it, really? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So radicalisation is very much occurs on social media and it's profit-driven. There is an algorithm it's the attention economy, essentially. How do you keep people interested? You have to keep outraging them more and more and more. And as you cycle down, the algorithm takes you into deeper and darker territory. Yeah, yeah, it takes you yeah. down it gives the you what, It gives you what it thinks you like and gives you more of it, basically. That's exactly. The, that's the point of the algorithm. Yeah. yeah. So YouTube works that way, doesn't it? Facebook works that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. YouTube is behind a lot of this. Amplifies, yeah. It amplifies these crazy, crazy stories and crazy, crazy ways of looking at the world. Yeah. And that's because, as I say, there's profit to be made. So what's the answer? What he talks about is the idea that everybody is on a spectrum of conspiracy theory beliefs. And when I read that, I kind of snorted to myself. And then he gave a very mild version, which is that there was the idea that there was something a bit amiss about the murder of JFK. And I believe that. 
Genuinely, I do. The idea that the CIA might have been involved or there might have been someone else shooting, mm. the the odd thing where... Yeah, the, yeah. The, the I have guy... the same thing about 9-11 sometimes, I think. Was it, was it a complete coincidence that you know, the Saudi, America, the Saudi uh, Arabian ambassador was flown out and all that stuff, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I, get, I get it, I get it. And, yes, there are different versions of the 9-11 conspiracy theory that go from, like, full-on the entire thing was CGI'd yeah. to something much milder that you're suggesting yeah, there, yeah, that yeah. maybe a few people had an Something, something a bit was rum going, going on. on, wasn't there? That's not being explained. Exactly. Properly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I get that. So the point is, everybody is on a conspiracy theory spectrum mm. in some sense. Mm. And the key thing is to find people's line of unbelievability or disbelievability. And it's basically saying so you might have somebody who's a full on 9 11 truther, but that they think the idea that the earth is flat is madness. Okay, so that's so there's your line. And your starting point then is to say, okay, well, some of the sources that are telling you your 9-11 truther stuff, they're also flat earthers. And that should hopefully start to open up so a chink like of light. discrediting the source, maybe? Well, discrediting, yeah, I suppose so, in the sense that it's saying... Because the question is, you know, where do you get your information from? You know, so you, because people who are conspiracy theorists, hardcore conspiracy theorists, will say you know, wake up sheeple, they yeah. talk about sheeple. But, of course, everybody believes a different source of information. And, and what they're saying is that this, their source of information has got, they've got the lowdown, they have got the gold that, that the rest of the population can't or won't understand. And so it's this sense of knowing, really knowing things other people don't know. And the power that comes with that and the evangelical zeal that comes with it mm. that, that is quite important to the emotional side of why people believe certain conspiracy theories. And so what West is talking about, he talks about the fact that he's saying, we're not saying that you should just believe what the government tells you. We all know governments lie. What we're saying is open up the range of sources and information and start to look at alternatives to the conspiracy theories you're looking at. So one of the things he says is, is if you're talking to a conspiracy theorist, don't just laugh at their sources of information because maybe you're just as guilty as they are of just being very defined and saying, I'm only going to believe stuff that comes from this source. And he's saying, well, maybe you should question yourself slightly on that. Maybe you need to learn a bit about what these theories are so that you can start to push back on them. And instead of just dismissing them with a wave of the hand and a, and a snort of derision, you say, actually, I... Thanks, I will look into that. And you do a swap there. You say, well, why don't you look at one of my sources and I'll look at one of yours? So I, I haven't read the book, but it sounds really interesting. But I guess my question would be, does reason work? That was my thought as well. For some people, it's it's such an emotional thing. It's beyond reason. It's about how they see themselves. You know, yeah. The kind of person that they are. And they identify with whoever's pushing the, the conspiracy and see themselves. It's part of their central being, their identity, like, you know, yeah. It's their identity, exactly. How do you how do you change? I think appeals to reason with a lot of people just isn't going to work because they're, they're going to come back at you and say, well, no, your sources are biased or you're biased or you've got your own reality and therefore I've got my own. You know, there's an acceptance that there's no such thing as objective truth, for instance. Mm. And if I believe something, it's true. And if you believe something, it's true. And we can have that sort of... Which is very, very difficult to argue about in a rational way, really. You can't yeah. really use logic when people are so locked into a belief system that is very much part of who they actually are and how they see themselves. I'd be interested to know how he would identify that or try and you know, come up with a solution to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's saying he can help everybody. 
there there are some people who are very very far down the rabbit hole and some people stay there for years mm. but people do come out again and so it's interesting it's a bit like what we were talking about with the book you were talking about ordinary men it's like well why is it that some people come out of the rabbit hole and some people don't what's different there let, let, let's investigate that and is it something to do with their makeup as an individual or is it something that we can have control over is it something that we could say well the reason they came out of the rabbit hole so one guy that he talks about came out of the rabbit hole because the people who he was meeting with physically they just became more and more extreme and at one point they said something and he thought to himself i know that's not true yeah so there's a moment of clarity for there him. was just this moment where he was yeah, like hang on yeah, a minute yeah, these yeah, people that yeah. i really identified with i'm now not so sure and yeah. that started this gentle journey back up the rabbit hole to the surface yeah yeah for sure yeah. so it brings you back to yourself and makes you examine your own motivations and stuff I totally get that. I totally get but it comes from you. It doesn't come from anyone else. That's the point. It, it comes. It, it, maybe this guy says that you can help it along by, by using arguments or stuff. I haven't. Read the I book. think that's what he's saying is that yes, ultimately it is for the individual to make their own decision. You know, how else could it be otherwise? But it's helping them reach that moment of clarity that that, that we're talking about. I'm interested, though, because it, it goes to show... I've done my three books. I, I've done one that I didn't quite finish, and I've done two that I did. I think the conversations that I've had... I, I thought this would be quite simple. You would tell me about a book, yes. and I would maybe ask you a couple of clarification questions, and then I would tell you about my book, and you'd do the same. And instead, we've gone very deep in some places, yeah. and I would love to have gone deeper, in, uh, but, but we're, we're well out of time. So it just remains for me to say... Thank you so much for giving your time today, Julian. I really there. appreciate Absolute it. Absolute pleasure, Matt. Yeah. And hopefully, if you're listening, some of these book choices uh, will appeal. Um, dark as some of them have been but there are many many more on the show notes both from julian and myself and who knows maybe one of those books would make a decent present for a nerdy friend or maybe not so nerdy i always say the word nerd don't i but just a friend i don't think you have to be a nerd to enjoy reading i don't think you do either so maybe there will be some books that your friend or family member might be interested in it's been wonderful talking to you julian and we'll maybe speak again soon super thanks Matt. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Julian for taking the time and providing the tea. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork, to Anna Gunn for editing support, to Acast for hosting, and of course, to you for listening. And if you've got a book recommendation, please do get in touch on LinkedIn or on Twitter using the handle at Soup Serendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.